the Spot Track Podcast, talking sports contracts, the salary cap, and business of sports. Hey everybody, welcome to the SpotTrack.com podcast. I'm Kevin Sylvester along with Paul Peck, Mike Gennetti, the founder of SpotTrack.com. I want to remind you that it's presented by Morgan Stanley Global Sports and Entertainment. They are empowering professional athletes and entertainers with the knowledge they need to make informed decisions about their finances and wealth and how to keep it. Learn more by visiting morganstanley.com slash GSE. Morgan Stanley Smith Barney, LLC member SIPC. We're going to learn more from Morgan Stanley today coming up on the show, Mike. Yeah, sure are. We're going to have uh, Mason Champion, Senior Vice President, NFLPA Financial Advisor, which I guess it makes sense. I didn't realize it, but there's that's a real thing. Like You have to qualify. You have to get inside of a club. right? It's, it's a group of financial advisors that are qualified to handle NFL players. Sort of approved by like, like the agents. parameters like of the NFLPA, yes. Yeah, which makes a lot of sense. And and it's a rather – it's an extensive – I'm a little familiar with it, that, that you have to go through a, a whole process and take a test and everything like that. It's 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 a rather extensive weeding out process. can't just have your guy. You cannot just have your guy. <laughs> <laughs> He's grading car washes. We're going to talk about um, having a guy later too, right? Yes, betting guy. We're going to have to talk about having a betting guy for <laughs> yeah. sure. That's going to uh, happen uh, later on the show too. We're going to talk about uh, gambling and what we anticipate is going to be uh, pretty much every state coming out. Of the how it board. affects salary caps, how it affects contracts, and uh, why maybe it invo- got involved with Russell Wilson here too. Right. That is because his contract is done. We're going to talk about it on the show. I just want to mention before we bring him in, what better name to have in sports than mm. champion? Absolutely. Right? That's great. <laughs> I mean, That's how great. could you not have that guy as your advisor? He's a champion. <laughs> All right. Absolutely. Uh, here is our conversation with Mason Champion from Morgan Stanley. Well, Mason, it's great to have you here on the show because we we talk about money and contracts all the time, and we've always wondered, how do you handle that kind of money? So we're looking forward to getting some of those answers, but uh, it's great to have you on here. Welcome to the show. Great to be here. Thank you, guys. Thanks for having me. You know, it's it's interesting to me um, how this massive amounts of money players get. Uh, NFL players uh, in particular. Uh, we're talking about this uh, on the heels of Russell Wilson's big contract. He's going to get a $65 million bonus. Mm-hmm. What do you do with $65 million bonus? I mean, how, how do you handle that kind of money initially? Well, you can, you know, you continue to work your plan, you know, regardless of the windfall that you may receive. You have a plan in place, and you work that plan. And hopefully it includes four key tenants, saving aggressively, living low to the ground, intentionally managing your cash flow and investing with prudence, you know, and you kind of uh, do your best to look past the the zeros at the end of the of the dollar amount and just continue to work your plan. Mason, how, uh, how do you go about uh, acquiring clients? Does it come through relationships with agents? Does it come from players directly? And at what point in a player's career are you getting involved? Is it is it prior to the draft? Prior is it once the contract is signed? Uh, give everybody a little insight into sort of your role. We talk so much about the agents being involved. Where where does where do you and a, and a financial advisor to a professional athlete kind of get involved in this? Sure. Um, oftentimes, I'll become involved in year zero to three, uh, depending on the relationship and how it comes to fruition. Sometimes it's before a player's drafted. Sometimes it's after he's been in the league for a few seasons. Uh, if an agent is recommending my involvement, it's typically before the player is drafted. Um, if a fellow teammate is making the introduction and recommendation, it's typically after the player's um, signed with the team and is seeking any associated counsel. Mason, how involved are the players themselves? Are, are they your lead contacts? Is it is it the parent? Is it the agent? Is it a guardian? Is it is it 
are, are you dealing directly with the players? And, and, and honestly, how much do they care about, <laughs> you know, the work that you do, you know, where, where their money's going? Is it, is it more hands off? I wonder if you could speak to, you know, some, some of the, the situations you've had with where players really want to get involved. Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Now they're, they're involved. Um, they want to understand their wealth plan, um, their allocation, their underlying positions. Uh, they're interested in economic trends and market movements, risks and opportunities. Um, they don't want to look at a statement and not know what it's telling them. You know, they want to be financially educated and they want to increase their knowledge relative to how their money is working for them. You know, so we walk that walk together uh, through regular deep dives and opportunity discussions, strategy sessions. Um, they walk away with an increased sense of what they own and why they own it and where they're headed and how they're going to get there and what role each particular position and investment associated with their total financial picture serves. You know, in their case, that would be from their NFLPA uh, benefits to their off-the-field earnings to each dollar from their salary and bonus arrangement. You know, and for that sense of understanding, they're encouraged and confident in their future on and off the field. You've said two things uh, in, in answer so far, Mason, that are fascinating to me. Number one, and it was, you know, working the plan, uh, the first thing you said was saving aggressively. Um, and I'm, I'm guessing that has to do with the longevity or lack thereof for most players. Uh, you know, speaking with football here in particular, uh, where saving aggressively matters because that income's not going to um, replicate itself post career in most in in most cases in the uh, NFL. And then the other thing I thought was fascinating was you used the word opportunities that present themselves. And I'm wondering how many players come to you with opportunities presented to them outside of you, and you're you're saying, "Hang on here, let's look at this in investment opportunity." I'm using quotation marks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, when you get down to brass tacks with something like that, it's how how is something going to affect your your cash flow? Is it is it going to require money out? Is it going to be associated with money in? If successful or if not, what associated impact would it have? Um, you know, on your investment plan or on your wealth plan? Um, players do get a lot of incoming, and um, and they require a professional team to manage that. Uh, there's resources that are available to them through the. NFLPA, um, a number of players have in-house counsel, of course they have agents, and so kind of getting that professional team laced up to help handle the incoming um, is, is very, very important uh, to your point. Mason, a lot of uh, uh, professional athletes are probably the first ones in their family to you know, clearly have that kind of wealth. So how much education do you feel like you have to do sometimes with players who just are not familiar with being able to have millions of dollars when maybe many of them grew up in lower income situations? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, regardless, a couple things with that. One is that regardless of the the background of the player, um, um, uh, they all, uh, and, and regardless of the background, regardless of of what box anybody would want to, to to associate, you know, with their circumstance, they they all understand the value of of discipline and hard work, um, sacrifice, and um, and no, you know, nobody's handed them this you know, this wealth, they've earned it and they've sacrificed for it. They've worked hard for it and they've anchored discipline. So that kind of, you know, I call it the universal language of discipline. If we can frame 
wealth management within that context, uh, that they would work um, hard uh, to earn this money and work hard to have it managed, that they would be intentional with their time, their dedication, their sacrifice um, uh, to earn the money, and then with the resource, with the resource itself, you know, they can, um, they can understand that and, and, uh, and they can process that accordingly. Financial education, to your point also, is, is extremely important and part of the, um, part of the responsibility we have, uh, as financial advisors and NFLPA, uh, registered player financial advisors and sports entertainment directors at Morgan Stanley is serving that that responsibility of delivering financial education to the player. And we try to do so very intentionally um, on an individual basis uh, with the players we walk the walk with and then uh, in, uh, in, group, in group settings as well. One of the things we really try to educate our users and fans of in terms of these NFL contracts is that don't believe every, everything you read and everything you see, right? These aren't fully guaranteed contracts for the most part. Generally, there's a lot of fluff at the back end of these. I wonder how much of that comes into your budgeting process when you're advising, when you're laying out cash plans for these players. Are, do you have knowledge of the structures of these contracts? And is that, a, is that something you take into consideration when you're handling, you know, three, four years down the road? Um, yes. Right. So we, we, um, like the, those four tenants that we mentioned earlier, save aggressively, live low to the ground, intentionally manage cash flow and invest with prudence. They hold true, uh, regardless of where the player is in their career. Um, those four critical tenants, they just don't change. The compensation structure might change from benefits updates to pay scales, to option years, franchise tags, and additional varying kind of idiosyncrasies in the cap structure. I'm not an agent. You know, I have no influence in the negotiation of those components between players and owners. My job is to understand their details, um, how they may and do change, where they fit into the overall structure of a player's wealth plan. But when you get down to brass tacks, the core tenants remain the same. Save aggressively, live low to the ground, intentionally manage cash flow, and invest with prudence. You know, it's um, uh, Rob Gronkowski has retired uh, from the NFL. I, th- I think he's going to come back and play <laughs> <laughs> when it comes down to December in the playoffs. But um, he's one of, and I think a few other players have said Handful they do now, this, right. Yeah. yeah, they say they they don't spend any of their um, earnings, their wages, football money, yeah. football mm-hmm. money, right. um, and they live right. off of the uh, endorsements and, uh, and appearance uh, money. Is that, I mean, how does how does that work? Is that something um, you advise? Is that smart to do? Why do that and why not uh, live, off the, live off your earnings and save the other stuff? I'm just curious as to uh, why it would work that way. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Now, it does seem to be a growing trend, um, which is honestly nice to see. It's refreshing. Uh, the players would 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 bank their on the field earnings and live solely on off the field income is you know wonderful. The point of caution I tend to remind uh, my players of is that their off the field earnings may very well decrease in retirement, not disappear, mind you, but just decrease. And if and when it does, any associated negative impact to monthly cash flow may well be met with some level of personal stress. So those core tenants resurface again, saving aggressively, living low to the ground, intentionally managing cash flow and investing with prudence. I come back to those repeatedly for a reason. In this instance, you know, perhaps a player would be best served to bank their entire on-the-field paycheck 
and I don't know, you know, one half to two thirds of their off the field earnings. Make the monthly spending a strict dollar amount and live to that. You know, if it's X dollars a month and you make three times X, bank everything that's above and beyond X, regardless of where it's earned. That might be a more effective platform for managing cash flow relative to sustainable long-term wealth. You know, the NFL, probably more prominently in the last couple of years, Mason, has become much more of a movement league. Contracts are shorter, uh, front offices get turned over more, which creates more player turnover. How do you handle that kind of trend of the NFL as it relates to your clients about residency, real estate? Should I buy a house now that I've signed this contract, even though I might only be in that city for a year or two? Uh, Has that changed a little bit of the way you approach your, your job? Uh, yeah, sometimes. I mean, the, the uh, renting is not necessarily a negative thing, you know, especially if you have, um, you know, a short-term contract or a rookie, rookie contract. In a number of instances, the players haven't thought where they'd like to settle down, where they, you know, where they want to live after football, or where they want to retire, et cetera. So when we open that kind of conversation regarding um, um, buying a home, where to live, et cetera, you know, we start with the end in mind. You know, when when you've when you've played your last game and you're retiring retiring from the league, where do you want to settle down? You know, is it in your hometown? Is it another place? You know, like let's have that conversation and let's define that goal from there, and then let's work toward first purchasing that home or land in that home that you can build on down the road. Uh, let's buy the forever home first, and if it takes a little while to to save the money to make that purchase over the course of a few seasons, it's fine. Rent in your local market in the meantime. Uh, and a lot of times they can rent from a veteran player or a retired player in that local market that may have a property themselves that they're you know, looking to, to rent out and that may already be furnished for that matter. But the player is intentionally um, setting money aside to buy that forever home first. Um, and then once it's purchased and paid for, mind you, um, we can we can examine purchasing in the local market, and a lot of times when we get to that purchase in the local market conversation, um, it's during a player's second contract or beyond that point. Um, um, that's very different than buying immediately in every local market within which you find yourself, and then potentially getting yourself in a position where you're, you know. Um, upside down on a property for not handling it um, more prudently. Something tells me Russell Wilson's okay to buy a house today, <laughs> right? I think a couple of them. I think he's getting the green most light. Most likely. Yeah. Most likely. Mason, let's wrap up with this. We're about a week away from 254 players getting drafted into a slotted contract in the NFL. What's your, what's your advice to them? Build your team now. Agent, financial advisor, general counsel, CPA, marketing manager, get get them all anchored and onboarded. You'll need their guidance, their insight, their counsel over the course of your career, and your, most assuredly over the balance of this year. You know, that you'd play in a bowl game, compete in senior bowl, go to combine, participate in pro day, give countless interviews in between, get drafted, sign your contract, move to a new city, establish residency, attend mini camps, symposiums, OTAs, mandatory team sessions, and then play an entire NFL season all in less than a year is nothing short of astounding. That's a lot going on. I mean, it's a lot. And if you don't think it's going to be noisy in the midst of all that, you're mistaken. It's going to be very noisy, so much so that it'll be overwhelming at times, 
you need a team of professionals whose job it becomes to manage the various lanes of specialization required to affect efficiency and productivity through that noise so that you focus on what you do best, play football. My job is to manage the wealth, to handle the money, and to walk the walk with you. The other professionals are important too, and they all need their place on your team. My advice to you, get that team laced up now. You'll be happy to have done so when the noise arrives. Awesome advice there. Mason uh, Mason Champion, CRPC, the Senior Vice President of Sports and Entertainment Director at Morgan Stanley. He's also an NFLPA registered player financial advisor for Morgan Stanley. Can you give me those four tenants one more time? Because I think everybody yeah, can really. uh, apply those to their life, not just uh, NFL players and professional athletes and entertainers. Absolutely. One, save aggressively. Two, live low to the ground. Three, intentionally manage cash flow. And four, invest with prudence. Awesome stuff. Mason, thanks so much for your time. We appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks, guys. Appreciate you having me. I don't know about you guys, but I had like 50 million more questions. Me too. About 50 million for, man, yeah. for Mason Champion, right? Yeah, really interesting stuff. Uh, you know, and, and, and again, it, and, and I think there's a perception out there because we've all heard the horror stories. We've seen the 30 for 30 that says 75% of all NFL players are bankrupt three years right. after they leave the league. And, and, you know, and obviously those players are not using or listening to someone like Mason. Um, you know, and, and again, there's different, you know, Having a guy like Mason, but getting the players to listen to them is probably part of his challenge as well. Right. Too. We, need, we need the 30 for 30 for the behind the scenes of 2 a.m. phone call. You know, I'm, sure. I'm buying this. Yeah, this is happening. Right. Like, how do, how do we make that work? Right. Yeah. I mean, those, those calls have to come. Absolutely. I mean, these guys. Are, I mean, your, your point, Paul, about being new millionaires. That's that's everything. Right? These guys I, don't know what to do. I, I was encouraged, though, that, uh, you know, he did say players and I'm you know I'm assuming he was meeting most of his clients like you no know, they want to go over the numbers hey explain this to me and I just say okay I got I got this amount right like explain to me how it works where it comes from right uh and where it's going and you know his his four tenants do make sense and the smart players do spend you know live live low I just ground. wonder how much of a challenge it is for a guy like Mason or anyone in that position to always get their players to live low to the ground because by nature the NFL players and stars are not guys who've ever okay. lived low to the ground but, but but they're human so let's relate it to uh, our world like so let's say you you get a windfall from Aunt Tilly right you know like uh, she she did well in the stock market and is uh, gifting some of her wealth at Christmas time and you, you get a check for a thousand bucks. We're going out to dinner. Hey, we can yeah, afford this. Yeah, it's right? gone before. Yeah, like, well, oh, this purse. Uh, go ahead, honey. We can afford it. And then you realize, like, ah, oh, shoot, we just spent fifteen hundred instead of a thousand. Right? Uh, it happens. Right? So they're human. They're just on a whole nother level. Like they go down. Uh, I can get the Range Rover. I can yeah. afford it. Right? Um, I, I assume. I, I assume. And I didn't think it was a fair question to ask him, but I assume like he could tell you. Okay, yes, you can get this. Yeah. But listen, you know, you only need one Rolex. Well, he's you don't need you don't need five. He right? sort of alluded to, and, and again, not a question to ask, but he sort of alluded to the point that maybe there's like an allowance. You know, he, he generally sets up some right. sort of Very allowance and you know, do what you will with this, but you know, everything else, you're never going to see. It. And it's probably <laughs> built that number of that allowance. He understands what what 
an NFL player needs to have. And there's a lot of pressure internally. I've talked to NFL players that that there's a lot of pressure internally from the locker room. You can't be the guy that rolls into the player parking lot driving the okay. Camry. It, it's it's hard <laughs> so, for the guys who have the ability to say, I don't care what you think I drive. That's great. But that's there's a lot of peer pressure. Great, right. Toyota's never sponsoring us now. Paul. Thanks. <laughs> Sorry yeah. about that. Well, maybe Ford will when I tell this story. Um, so Rob Ray... Um, in, in the Buffalo market here, and I, I worked with Rob for many years uh, on Sabres broadcast, but he was a player, and Paul, you, you know, Razor, I mean, people know Rob Ray, who are hockey fans. He's a fighter, right? An enforcer. Rob Ray um, would, you know, people would tell the stories about Razor on the road, and he just, he confirmed them all. He drove a Ford Taurus forever, <laughs> right? Uh, he, drove, he drove a Ford Taurus, and I go, you're Rob Ray. What do you, now, Rob, didn't make a million a year. Right. Never made a million a year. You know, he was making uh, three hundred, four hundred thousand, maybe five hundred by the time his career was done. He might he might have made eight hundred thousand at the most, uh, one year in his career. But he certainly made enough money. You know, uh, playing hockey. Yeah, uh, why am I guessing here? Mike can look this up because this is going. what he does. So, anyways, uh, Razor. But not only that. So he he drove the Ford Taurus. Didn't care right what others thought. Also, he goes look it. You know. I bought a Hugo Boss suit, but I bought one. That's all I had. Wearing it everywhere. He and that's all. So he'd go on the road, and the trainers would confirm this, and you know, Razor would tell you this to himself. He he, he would pack the toothbrush in his uh, uh, you know breast pocket of his suit. That's all he took on. He didn't bring suitcases, nothing. I went, well, how would that work? He's like, well, it's pretty simple. I'd bring an extra pair of underwear and they'd, they'd wash the laundry. So I just alternate those. I'd sit around in my underwear in the, in the hotel. <laughs> Sorry, interrupted by that phone call. Uh, he'd walk Is around. A razor? Yeah. Or he'd hang <laughs> He's out. He's pissed. He'd hang he wants out. to sell you his Taurus. <laughs> he'd hang out in the robes, right? Uh, because he banked all his money. Banked all his money. For a house, and he's invested in different businesses now that use that mm-hmm. money to set himself up for the rest of his his life. I'm going to guess that's not the kind of advice people are giving out these days, but I love it. Right. I well, it. I'll give you another quick example of professional athletes, and then we'll talk about Russell Wilson and some gambling here on the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I lived in Charlotte, uh, Ethan Horton and Torn Dorn did a show together. Uh, a radio show. They, they're they from North Carolina, but they played together with the Raiders. And when they played together with the Raiders, they were in L.A., I believe. I don't think they were in Oakland. It doesn't matter the location. They shared an apartment, and they shared a car. They furnished their apartment. They each had a bed. They each had a recliner. That was it. And because they wanted us to, because they, they knew their careers were, and they had decent careers, but they weren't going to be ridiculously long careers making a, a ton of money. So they'd bank as much money as they can yeah. by deciding, all right, we're going to live together. We're going to live low to the ground, as uh, Mason said. So um, so for all the stories of players who lose all their money. There's, there's a lot of those stories, too. A lot of money, uh, play, uh, money that uh, stories of players who were smart with their cash. Yeah, and let's also be honest, as much as we spend a lot of time talking about Russell Wilson and the stars, right. the Anomalies. bulk of the players, probably 75 to 80% of them, are guys that are kind of just hanging on and and are maybe you know middle-of-the-pack guys who have no guaranteed, big guarantee signing bonuses. So there's a lot more of those kind of NFL players than there are but, the, the big star quarterbacks. But think about how much pressure it would be off of you without a mortgage. Right, oh, sure. Uh, right, yeah. Isn't that all we care about right <laughs> That's now? That's right. Your mortgage is paid off. It's like, hey, <laughs> right? I mean. I, I, okay, I can deal with that. The, you can find something to do. To your point, Paul. That's that's why I brought up the guaranteed contract structure with him. Um, 
I, I just wonder. I wonder when that's going to become more of a problem. Like, like think about the running back. You know, how do you advise a running back right now? You know, who's making one, one and a half, two million on yeah. average? You've got three years to earn your money. That's it. Yeah. Right. Like after after you're drafted, you might get four more years. You might get eight years. That's a great career for a running back right now. So, I, I just wonder. Like age twenty seven and later, you're playing on house money at that point. So I, there is no budgeting. For a veteran that in the NFL anymore, unless the guarantees are there, and for the most part they're just not. And and at some point, if we ever get Mason back on again, I think the question that that I'd be curious to ask is how many of his clients um, never have to work again, and how many hmm. of them does he have to adv- create a plan where either by choice or by necessity they're out of the league at 27 years old and they don't have enough to live on for the next 40 years 40 plus years how do you set up a, a financial plan that way not only that but when do you start that process right That's like right. we're all we're all here in the lebron stuff and now he's multitasking with 11 businesses right now right and you know, good or bad, he is setting. I mean, he's going to be ready to go when he, whenever he stops basketball. I mean, sure, he's going. Everything's going to be in full motion. But if he didn't want to, he didn't have to. He wouldn't. He wouldn't because have to. of his cash flow. Correct. He's going to make four times more doing what he's doing later than yeah, what he's that's doing. That's true. Now. He's making thirty-five million right now. I promise you, Space Jam Two is going to make him triple that. But didn't he make uh, <laughs> the? Is it Blaze Pizza? Is that yes, the franchise? Is that what, he, was that him? He that put a he's million part into of it. it? Yes. Oh, that's it? right. In Cleveland, remember there are all those franchises. I've yeah. eaten at a Blaze Pizza. In Cleveland before um, they, uh, I think he put a million in or something. But he like his investment. He owns tenfold. part of Liverpool soccer. Like he, yes, he's yeah. all over the place. But that's he's what I mean. Thirty million in the soccer team. When do you <laughs> increase? Crazy. I believe. And, yeah. By the way, franchising I think is a very prominent part of ath- right. ex athletes. I've met an ex football player who owns a couple of IHOPs in the area that you know where he lives. I think that's something that companies appeal to athletes. Uh, and he explained that he gets to be sort of the coach and the leader right. of a franchise, of a group, to to teach other people how to follow the game plan, the, pl- the playbook, so to speak. So franchising, I think you hear a lot of it. Um, uh, Peyton Manning, I think, had a, you know went before his relationship with Papa John's went sour. Um, owned a lot of I those think restaurants. Or Papa John went sour. Well, that too. Yeah. Also, um, you know, so Need I think a PR guy, my friend. Franchising, I think, is something that that is a, a you'll probably find a lot of ex athletes who get into take that influx of money to make the initial step into owning franchises and then let the business grow around it that segues into our our opportunity in the spot track restaurant franchise opportunity <laughs> yeah, here. coming soon and russell CBD. wilson's gonna buy the first one because <laughs> russell wilson wow uh he gave the We're deadline sell souvenir salary cups at the oh, spot track restaurant wow. paul peck with a rare gem right <laughs> at there. his coffee this morning that is awesome I love it. We're gonna, we're gonna. Uh, uh, I had an old, We're gonna sell those on the site, man. I had an old, uh, an old mentor of mine who was sort of half a sportscaster, half vaudeville co- comedian, who used to have a hat with dollar bills tacked to it, and he'd say, "What do you think that is?" And people would go, "I don't know." Like, That's my salary cap. <laughs> See, brilliant. Thank I know. You. I worked with that guy too. He was a legend. All right, um, let's run down the Russell Wilson contract here. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and what it means for quarterbacks going forward. First off, how close was it to the one you thought he was going to get or thought he should get? Because yeah. we, we were very – I think you're pretty close, weren't you? I, I was close. Uh, valuation-wise, over the winter, we had him at about $32 million a year, and that's just because nobody else was making more. You know what I mean? I mean, Aaron Rodgers, 33 and a half. That's sort of where the, you know, the bar was going to be. And you just assume it's going to be next man up because that's been the philosophy for eight years now with quarterbacks. You know what I mean? If you're, if you're worth anything and you're under – 
38, you're going to get the most money ever in the history of football. And that's what happened here. So we don't, we don't have all the details yet. And we actually don't have the most important detail, which is the upfront guarantee. I'm going to assume, based on Seattle's structures in the past, that only 2019 is guaranteed right now. That's just generally how they work. Uh, but the way that, I mean, you get a $65 million signing bonus and you spread that over five years for cap purposes. That means in four years, he's still going to have $26 million of dead cap. So mm. he is locked in for four years. That's a, that's a guarantee here. It's, it's right in par with what I put out yesterday. I put out a structured contract for him yesterday just to see what would happen. Um, it's going to be, yeah, it's going to be a, uh, I put out about a four for 130. So four for 140 blew me away. Mm. <laughs> $65 million signing bonus blew me away. He didn't just surpass uh, Aaron Rodgers. He beat him by $2 million. In terms of the annual average. So, so they, did they overpay for him? They didn't. I mean, look at this is what happens when the cap rises 10, 10 million every year now. That's what's happening. This is an 18.5% percentage of the salary cap. That's less than Aaron Rodgers last year. So it's. That's the number that Mike has taught us to really pay yeah. attention to. Aaron Rodgers got 19% deals. of last year's cap. That's an unbelievable mm. number for one player on a 53 man roster. So, so Russell's a little less than that. He's 18.5. So it's not, it's not a mind boggling contract when you, when you look at it that way. Uh, but yeah, $65 million this year plus some salary. Uh, that's a ton of money to start with for a guy who was at $21 million a year to, you know, coming into this. What, what I really want to talk about and where it's going to lead us into our next segment here is why, why did it take so long, right? Who, who, who was fighting? Who was pulling? Was it the Seahawks? Were, were the Seahawks afraid to do 18.5% 18, 18. of their cap? Were they worried about anyone having that kind of cap number? You know, going forward in the next three years when maybe they don't think they're that good. We've talked about them. You know, last year might have been a fluke, right? Sure. I mean, sure. I don't know I don't know if they deserved to make the playoffs last year. I don't think anybody thought they were going to. And they didn't, they're not really much better. I mean, they didn't go out and sign anybody huge to make that, that roster better. I did a quick look at their wide receivers, running backs, tight ends. You and, probably don't fall in and, love with anybody. I mean, yep. Doug Baldwin's been Doug hurt 11 Baldwin's times. Right? Getting up there. Uh, they, they've always churned through a group of running backs, mostly no name guys. Six of them that they're going to try to make work. But well, yeah. don't you th- uh, so judging by what we heard out of Russell Wilson's camp about? Uh, all right, we're giving you this deadline yeah. to get a deal done. That to me said Seattle had to figure out what they were doing. Mm-hmm. Meaning, are are we going to rebuild? Are I, I agree. Stick, right. I, mean, I, I I agree. It, w- it was him putting the pressure on the franchise sure. to figure themselves out because, like I said, I don't think they know what to do right now. Because Russell Wilson's getting money no matter where he's at. No matter. So I think it was just for him to say, look, if I'm staying here, you've got to figure out what you're doing, and you've got to figure it out by tax day. I just want to speak one minute here about the rumors out there, and we had it with Aaron Rodgers, too, that he was looking for a percentage of the cap deal. Yeah, I was going to ask you about let's that. Let's quickly talk about this. We spoke to Andrew Brand a little bit about this. We've spoken to some people just to sort of get an understanding of how this would work. I don't understand how it would work. It, it, you can't build in a negotiated contract that allows for flexibility. It just doesn't happen. Sure. You would and have teams to re- don't want that. You would have to renegotiate every single year based on how the cap increases. It'd be a one-year deal renegotiated every single year, which is fine, except teams can already do that with a franchise tag. That's what that's built for. That's what it's there for. Why go through all that trouble with a player and have to deal with them every single year based on what the league revenue is? When you could just say, we're just going to slap a couple of franchise tags on you and get you, get you out of here year three. That, that's what was going to happen, right? I mean, three franchise tags. Over he would the have next made $36 years. million in the second franchise tag. 30, that's, he's right about underneath there, right? 31, 36, and 50, 54. I think it's like 86 over three years is what it would have been. He's now making 107, okay? Yeah. Guaranteed, probably over three years. So he, he wins here. Um, 
we don't need to talk, talk about cap restructures or anything like that. I mean, that's just – I don't understand how we're ever going to get to that point because, like I said, there's just so many semantics. You, you can't build it into one deal. It's got to be renegotiated, ripped up, and redone in order to make it work for the new cap. So unless the CBA figures that out, I mean, maybe that maybe this pending CBA is going to is going to address this and you're going to be allowed to pay a, a, a lifetime player like this that can have flexibility and fluidity within their cap numbers and, and their annual average. But – I do we really need it? Russell Wilson just got one hundred and seven yeah, million dollars. No, no. What are we doing here? Right. I mean, what are we doing? Why? Why do we even need any more of this? Just if, if you if you love the guy that much, give him part ownership. Well, I mean, put, what, put him with yes. the team. That's I mean, what I would ask for if I were the player. Yeah, right. I, I don't understand why we have to go. This. It's already so freaking complicated. You know what I mean? Like I have to explain things on Twitter every day, and I'm happy to do so. But just for a general public, can we just make this easier? Make some money, get a huge signing bonus, and make some money. That's what he's. That's all this yeah. is here. Right? One other thing I want to ask you about. <laughs> and this was brought up in the course of the negotiations. The the unique situation of Russell Wilson's agent uh, being mostly a baseball guy, and money, Russell right? Wilson's the only football player that he represents. <laughs> and and baseball agents negotiate very different kinds of contracts yeah. based on how baseball is set up. Any any factor at all? Anything in this contract tell you, boy, that's a guy who knew how to do things differently at all? I'll tell you what, we it's a it's probably a bad year to compare things to baseball contracts. That's true. <laughs> I mean, I mean, holy cow, how things have changed over there, and we're gonna, we're going to have a whole show on that soon. But this is not a baseball contract. I mean, this is like I said, this is actually I haven't seen the structure yet. My assumption based on Seattle, based on the numbers I'm seeing, is this is pretty straightforward. This is big bonus. Small salaries. I'd be surprised if there weren't some per game bonuses, you know, just because of the nature of the player and the age that he's at. Um, but it sure sounds like that this is pretty cut and dry vanilla, that he's just getting a lot of money for the next three, four years. Uh, like I said, the dead cap is going to keep him there four years or keep him somewhere four years. You know, they can't say this isn't tradable. Everything's tradable now. But uh, good deal for him. I'm, I'm happy he's staying. I always like to see players stay in one spot like this. So I, I just. You know, you, you can't talk about this deal and that team right now and fi- and not not look around and say, are they really that good? That's really my takeaway from this. All right. So, what does uh, gambling revenues or projected gambling revenues as more states? And we're gonna we're gonna have an interview with this. But uh, what does uh, how does this affect right this so, contract? So we talked about that fluidity with the cap, and, and I think the reason that that Russell and his camp at least maybe entertain this idea is that, like I said, the cap has risen ten million past the past two years. We're seeing all these other sports have really strong cap increases. Even hockey, you know, not not flashy like the other sports, but in, in their own right, any, the NHL numbers have increased. I mean, there's revenue everywhere right now. And gambling is now this elephant in the room, and it's starting to impact certainly the NBA. I mean, you're seeing every NBA team is associated with a casino or, or some kind of mechanism directly right now. Sponsorships, advertising, they own, you know, they, they're the name on the arena, whatever it is. They're involved with every single team directly, not to mention the league. Um, so, and, and we're going to talk to somebody here from the American Gaming Association who has has a, a really strong handle on where this is going, um, and and maybe we'll, we'll be able to speak to how this is going to affect the salary cap. What it's definitely going to do is inf- impact revenues. And revenues, when revenues go up, everybody wins, including the players, and certainly the salary cap. And I think that's why you had Russell Wilson in his camp saying. It's 188 now, but it might be 215 in two years, right? And then 35 million of 215 is, you know, not so great. So 
I understand that, and we certainly saw that boom happen in the NBA, and that's why the NBA players are taking one- and two-year deals, by the way, because they're ready for whatever comes next. Um, All right. Well, what's coming next is our conversation with Sarah Slane from the American Gaming Association to uh, give us more information on sports gambling and how it's going to impact professional sports, their revenues, and you. Well, we are pleased to be joined by Sarah Slane, the Senior Vice President of Public Affairs for the American Gaming Association, to talk about uh, sports gambling and uh, how it's going to relate to the NFL and professional sports. And I guess my my first question, Sarah, is uh, and thanks for joining us, by the way, is when Thank are we going to? Yeah, when are we be able to gamble in every state? I live in New York State. When can I gamble uh-huh. sports in New York State? And why is it taking so long? Uh, you can you can now, uh, but only at the brick and mortar facilities in upstate New York. So they. Um, the state has been debating whether or not to move to mobile for, um, for, for uh, 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 this whole legislative session. And so so it remains to be seen as to whether or not there'll be a mobile component in New York. Um, but if you wanted to go or live to uh, close by some of the casinos in upstate, you could go do that. So, And by mobile, you mean uh, for those of us who do daily fantasy on FanDuel, for example, they have a sports book. But you can't do that in New York State. You can in New Jersey, for example, because they allow mobile sports betting. That's what we're talking about, correct? That's right. Yep, yep. So uh, it, this is being rolled out on a state-by-state basis. And so the state has to decide whether or not to allow for uh, the two platforms, which is the brick-and-mortar and the mobile component. And so in New Jersey... You can do both. You can go to Atlantic City. You can go to Meadowland uh, or Mama's Race, uh, the, the track there, mm-hmm. and place a bet. And you also have the option then of placing a bet on your phone. Sarah, do you think that the federal government eventually gets involved? And do you think that's a, that's a good idea, or do you think this should remain state to state? Um, I, I don't think the federal government gets involved unless something you know would would provoke them to do so, but. It's extraordinarily difficult to get things passed in Congress, as everyone knows. Um, gaming is typically rolled out on a state-by-state basis, and so I just don't see that changing. Um, and if you recall the, the case, the federal case that was brought before the Supreme Court, the most compelling argument that um, everyone made was that this is really a states' rights issue. And so I just think it's very, very difficult for the federal government to then come in and trump state legislators. I like how you use Trump in there, by the way, with the federal government. Anyhow, all right. Sarah, numbers have started numbers have started to come in. New Jersey over $30 million in revenue from sports betting just in March, obviously because of the NCAA tournament. Every legal state seeing revenues double in December, a big NFL uh, betting month. Now that you've got tangible evidence, has that helped uh, the, the whole process of getting more states involved? How many were waiting to see if it was really going to work and what the revenues were going to be? Now that you've had a big sports betting month in March and you've seen the numbers, how has that changed the perception of sports gambling? Yeah, I think it's done two things. Uh, first and foremost, I think that one of the most compelling arguments for state legislators uh, to hear is they hate the uh, opportunity to, to miss out on revenue. So we, we refer to it as FOMO um, because they don't want to miss out and have their state 
for example, in New York next to New Jersey, and you hear about all these people that are driving literally over the bridge with cuts and then driving back into New York. So New York is missing out on a massive revenue opportunity by not having mobile, by not having um, more accessibility to sports betting. The second thing that we've seen now is while we talk about some of the great success stories, New Jersey's a really, really good example of that. New Jersey has one of the best legislative and regulatory um, policies in place. And so I think as other states contemplate this and or have rolled out over the past year and haven't really realized the revenue projections or potentials that they were hoping for, it's typically because of a, a few things. Number one, they don't have mobile. And number two, because the tax rates are too high, it, 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 it encumbers the operator's ability then to market and compete with the illegal offshore operators. So, you know, I, I think the, the revenue story tells a, a picture on both sides, and I think there are lessons to be learned from that. I had a conversation. This was actually uh, one that's being mulled in New York State um, last summer. Uh, when, they, when they didn't pass it, mm-hmm. a- and the issue was mobile sports betting, and the argument I made with this state official was, here, I want to I show you something on my phone. And I brought, it, I brought this person over, and I go, this is, this is what I'm doing. I am betting on a horse race right now in California, mm-hmm. all right, Santa Anita yeah. Parkway. And this, really, you can do that? I go, yes. <laughs> I said, so it already exists. Right. It's already out here, right. and I can bet mobily on a four-legged athlete, but I can't on a two. <laughs> I said, that doesn't make sense to me. Right. Uh, and so that's, that, that, that to me is an argument for it. But the argument against it is, and, and, and you know, people are going to make the argument, well, if it's on their phones, like people are just going to be, be just bet like crazy and become degenerate gamblers. Um, how do you uh, contradict that argument? Yeah, I thought the story you were going to tell me was that you you pulled up an illegal website. <laughs> Offshore, yeah. No, no. I I, I wanted to show. I wanted to show that. Yeah, yeah. I know, but I I just wanted to show like, look at. I, I can do this. Right. I don't have to go anywhere. I can do it now. So uh, the, the concerns over mobile. I, I I to me anyways. And I'm I'm not a big sports gambler. Um, I just want the opportunity to do so if I feel. Yeah. Like I want to. Yeah, Sarah, Sarah, what is the the, the right. pause with these states not going mobile, the states that are legal but don't have mobile? Is it is it to Kevin's point that they're worried that there's just going to be an oversaturation of people doing this? Yeah, I, I mean, I, look, I don't, I don't ever want to um, diminish that responsible gaming is imperative to the success of, first of all, our business. And, you know, in, and second of all, we, we, don't, we don't want to have um, – there's a massive perception issue around responsible gaming and mobile and a lot of misperceptions, unfortunately. And the truth of the matter is, is that it's extraordinarily difficult to get on and place an, an app, uh, or excuse me, place a bet legally on an app. Now, if you were betting in the offshore illegal websites, not so much because they don't care. They don't have any regulatory oversight. They're not going to lose their license if they take a bet from someone that either has a problem or is a minor. Meanwhile, you know, our operators and suppliers are heavily regulated, licensed. They're, they, There is absolutely no incentive for them to want to take a bet then from someone that may have an issue, an addiction issue. So I think that there is definitely a perception, a misperception around, you know, what mobile could lead to. And, you know, until you actually have the ability to look at all the safeguards that are in place and all the consumer protections that, 
you know, we're required to adhere to, you're operating in a little bit of ignorance, some of these legislators. Let's bring it towards the sports leagues now a little bit. Um, I, I, I read somewhere where you stated this. When leagues are pushing integrity fees, they are tripping over dollars to pick up pennies. I wonder if you can elaborate on that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So our our point with that is there is a much, much bigger picture and a much bigger pie for them. And the bigger pie is a couple things. I mean, it is definitely through the traditional marketing and sponsorship opportunities. But really, this all becomes about fan engagement for them. And you know, the more their their biggest revenue source, as we all know, is the TV rights contracts that they do. And when they see decline in viewership, or you know, conversely, it, a big upswing, like we just saw this last weekend on Sunday with the Masters, you know, that translates into obviously bigger contracts for them to do with uh, TV operators and broadcasters and media companies. And so, you know, as we've correlated. Sports betting is a fan engagement tool. It is something that gives that fan um, to they have skin in the game. So they end up watching more games for a lot longer. And, again, that just translates back into uh, that uptick then in the media rights deals that they negotiate. We've seen professional sports teams start to kind of embrace this in various ways. Uh, the Washington Capitals have, uh, ha- you know, have betting kiosks ready in their arena. Uh, we're based here in Buffalo, New York, where one of the owners of the Bills and the Sabers has publicly said they are they are looking into the opportunities that sports gambling can bring to the team. Have you started to get a sense that that the teams themselves are are embracing this and ready to go is that in your conversations with team owners and leagues are you feeling that yeah yeah for sure um you know they're all pulling together their their plans and their thoughts on how they're going to capitalize on this opportunity and uh work in partnership with uh the gaming industry you know i think one really important thing to keep in mind is that the, <laughs> there's a starting line and the starting line is there have to be open markets and, you know, you talked about New York, and there's clearly a brick-and-mortar opportunity. But, you know, in order for them, um, for the leagues and the teams to derive real revenue from the operators, you have to have uh, a good um, legislative model in place. And so, you know, I often hear from some of the teams in, in uh, Pennsylvania. They're like, look, we would love to partner with some of the gaming companies, but uh, the constant thing that we get back from the gaming companies is that they can't afford marketing and sponsorship. And the problem is that because you have a 36% tax rate in Pennsylvania and a $10 million licensing fee, there's just not a whole lot of money left over then to work in partnership with those teams and um, you know drive customers back to your legal site. Now, that's fascinating. A lot of things uh, need to be worked out. Um Hopefully they do get worked out here. It just it just seems to uh, make sense, and you know I, I'm big into golf, and uh, you know the, when I watch the Open Championship, and you know they they reference uh, yeah <laughs> the, the the action, and some players will even tweet out that they went and uh, you right. know threw some down on themselves. It's it, it, very interesting. With that, of course, we just had that famous bet 
that guy made. Although I don't know From if Tiger I believe, Woods. Yeah, I don't know if I believe yeah. the whole story um, uh, there. It just seems that, that seems like a huge leap. <laughs> and when you're when you're that big in debt to come up with eighty six grand in cash, I'm not sure where you're going to get that. But anyways, that's a different story. And that's not for Sarah to answer. Sarah, thank you so much for your time. We appreciate it. Thank you. Have a great day. You thank too. You. Well, thank you to Sarah Slane again, the Senior Vice President of Public Affairs for the American Gaming Association. Um, you know, an industry that, you know, they're trying to get more gaming on board. Uh, the one thing I want, to, I want to mention about integrity fee, uh, because all the leagues and the PGA Tour has, has asked for it. And I, I do think it, it makes sense that because they're going to have to police their sports even more um, which I, I is, think is, is Sarah's point about the pennies and the dollars saying that these leagues are going to make so much money from the money that's going to come in for the gambling that integrity if, fees are, are going to be. A, is that, is that the point she's making? But, but no, but, but what the leagues are saying is they have to they police themselves now, but they're going to have to police themselves even more to make sure players, coaches, referees are on the up and up. You had the NBA. Uh, scandal with the referee, the referee right? yeah, Don- um, Donaghy, sure, yeah. So uh, you know, like that was just a nightmare, right? The, the guy, guy admitted to calling fouls, like working games and lines. So you've got to police that, and, and to do so, you have to have dedicated people to to do that. And I think even more, um, just kind of investigating, making sure things are. I mean, why can't the state do that? Why can't the state do that? The, don't we want I the think, state? Wouldn't we rather the state do that than the team? As as betters, I'd rather have the league. Well, there's certain. <laughs> well, no, but there's certain things they can look out for, contacts, and so they'll get more the information. Can do better at that. Yes, I think the leagues can do better at policing themselves when it comes to that because they've got a lot to lose by 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 having things uh, be questioned. I'll tell you why Sarah backed off this, and I've I've read some more of her work leading up to this, and she alluded to it a lot here in her, in her answers. It's a real pain in the butt to make a legal sports bet right now. It is. And and it's only going to get harder with things like that and more regulations and as these bigger states get involved. It is a big fight to get legal betting away from illegal betting, to, to, to separate that. Because the illegal bettors, she, like, she, like she said, there's there's no rules. You can yeah. do whatever you want. You it's can do it easier, from anywhere, right. for anything. You, well, you're you not can, taxed on it through, your, you, through a you bookie. Can, you can bet anything. You, it's not just the major American sports, right? You can bet anything you can bet darts whatever you want right and that's probably never coming to america legally but you can bet if this podcast is going to be over or under an hour long (laughs) (laughs) i'm betting over paul's getting cranky get off my lawn Um, but but really really i think it's about streamlining this process especially out of the gate because it is it's you know the more regulation and the more things you get involved and the more you know monetary fees and things like that that get included the harder it's going to be for somebody to pick up that phone and place a bet. Well, it's just, it just is. Yeah, I, I think, you know, the point that that'll be passed on to the better, right? Yeah. The integrity fee will be passed on to the no better. No question. Right? But, it's like buying tickets to a concert. But service right? charge, service, service fee, charges, surcharge, sure. whatever, or, 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 the, or the cost of whatever being able to but, make that bet's going to go up with the fees but, all. It's like your cable bill or whatever. There, there's a whole list of those fees that are involved. And, and uh, you know, what, if you, betting legally, you've got to put the money down right away. When um, listen, I've never placed an illegal bet yeah. through a bookie, but I know people who do. We've done it friendly through friends, though, right? Yeah, but I'm just saying, no, the ones placed it. I'll get a bookie, you back later, right? Yeah, well, yeah, <laughs> they've got an account, right? Yeah. You know, and then 
Then when it comes time to collect the account, yeah. they got to you know got to meet some sketchy guy at the mall, yeah. right? To uh, <laughs> hand him an envelope, yeah. right? Or getting the envelope. But that's the other part, getting the money. You know, look, I'm not a go place guy. I don't want to go anywhere to do this. I want to pick up my phone, go to my computer, and do this. So as quickly as we can get to that point. Sure. You know what I mean? Like, I'm doing that with FanDuel, DraftKings, all those things right, right now, right? I do Dynasty it with FanDuel, owner. yes. Um, so the uh, I, that's where I, we, we need to get to as quickly as possible. And however however we have to get over these regulations, and, and I'm happy to hear her say she doesn't think the federal gov- government gets included because that'd be a whole nother ball of wax. Yeah, they if got, they set the guidelines and then we all have to sure. – the states all have to – I mean, that – you, if we get there, this is going to be half a decade. I mean, let's be fair. All right. You know, the, the interesting thing to me is uh, what is holding this back? And I just think they're just trying to figure out how to do it. Right? Yeah, yeah but I love her point, and I want to make it again as we kind of wrap up here. The, the leagues are trying to make all their, pinch all the money out of this as possible because this is new, right? This is a new baby, and they want to grab a hold of it and own it, right? I, I get it. and I, I actually, That makes sense. I actually get your point on the integrity fee. Sure. Um, because – the, if and if you agree that the leagues can do the best job of this, then what are we waiting for? Just do it, just do it. You know what I mean? Start start putting that workforce in place, and even if it's not included in the, in the process right now, put it there anyway. Well, you know what I mean, just, like, just put you, it there anyway. You just can't have ever anybody do it. I mean, you've got to hi- hire no, investigators, highly trained people my to point look is, for things. My point right? is, do that right now. Do it, even though it's not required, or even though it's not a part of the system. Well, right I'm now. sure they do it to a certain level. Just just start doing that. Roll it out. Um, but I, I think she's dead on that. Look, at we've if you've been involved in fantasy sports in any way over the past 20 years, right? you know that playing fantasy sports makes you care. It just makes you care more That's about correct. anything, about the third guy on the Warriors bench. It makes you right? smarter just, about the sport. You're reading. You're listening. There's podcasts every day for all this stuff. You just care more about everything. You're watching more. You're watching games you never thought you'd watch. You're looking at highlights the next morning. Everything matters a lot more because you're you're invested. That that's that's just going to be the same thing all over again here. This isn't new. Yeah, fantasy sports has always done this. So yes, there's going to be higher ratings. There's going to be more engagement. You're going to get smarter, more educated fans watching. All of which are higher sponsorships, higher advertising, higher com- like it's it's all going to be just, there. Just, just do it. I just want to know <laughs> if they employ these thing employ these things at uh, ballparks. Can I go to the Can I go to a City Field, the yeah. Mets game, and play mound ball on an app? Yeah, I just want to be sitting there at the first baseline on my phone, live betting. Looking, yeah, you know. Oh, but you the, or the question is, are you going to have to go to a to an area <laughs> yes. in a stadium? See, that's where I think these things have to still be figured out. Both, are right? we getting to the point where you can sit in your seat in the first baseline and make a bet, or are you going to have to get up and go to the concourse and go to an area? No, it's going to be both. Stadium? It's going to be. I, both. I think it ha- well. Yeah. I think ultimately, if it's both, it, it will be eighty well, percent phone and twenty percent anything else. Listen, uh, you know. Uh, I can already see it now. You you can buy a gaming ticket. You get a seat and yeah. a certain amount of credit. Of course. Just right? like the casino, right? Yeah. Right? Just like the casino. Yeah. That, yeah. That's totally what teams are going to do. Yep. And if they're not, you're welcome for that idea. Just right there. I mean, if, if, if you have a kiosk in your place or a seating area in a club section where you can wager, the ticket price is going to include an amount of credits I, uh, uh, to gamble I during had, the game. I had the pleasure to go to the uh, Nationals-Mets opener in Washington, D.C. this year. and I, I had been there a couple years ago to the, to the Nationals Park, which is beautiful. And it was in this like out open area, you know, sort of the monuments were right there. It's really real, well done. So I go this year, <laughs> completely under construction. Everything around it is just a war zone right now. Um, 
two things are happening. Like like a mile and a half away, Amazon's coming. So you can understand that, you know, the sure. crazy turnover over there. But all around, literally right around the park, left and left, left field, right field, condos, commercials, commercial buildings, real estate, everything is coming up. And I was talking to some people, some fans in the seats. Um, a lot of it is geared around betting's coming. Look at, like we said, the Capitals have already built this thing in yeah, their arena. Washington Capitals took they, out the green They're turtle. building betting restaurants, betting community areas right at the stadium, right around there, literally across the street, because it's just going to be come to the ballpark. And if you don't want to come in and bet... Sit at the bar. It's going to be like the the bars and restaurants that surround every ballpark in the country, right? They're they're either going to be part of those bars and restaurants, or they're going to be separate places around. DC is ready. They're ready to go. Um, Final thing here, and it's been a great show. I mean, jam packed. uh, You know, Mason Champion, uh, Sarah Slane, Russell Wilson. Do we do we believe the? I mean, the whole story behind the Tiger Woods bet. Eight, what was it? Eighty five hundred, eighty five, eighty five thousand to get to one point two two million. Right, but the, the guy was twenty five. Yeah, how did you get eighty five grand? Yeah, well, that's. I mean, and he would never bet on sports before. That's the part. And that he I'm went like, to three on. different casino b- books that wouldn't take the bet until William Hill did it. it I, I read the Darren Ravel story, or at least the part of it that was available. Uh, it just sounded really odd what, to me. What? Because here, well, how could it not be real? Is my point. Wouldn't wouldn't Vegas come out and say no way, no we didn't? Because this is their biggest crush ever, right? The bet seems real. The circumstances of this That's what I'm saying, unlikely right? guy doing it don't seem real. Like when that bet was placed, didn't you think like, wow, there's some some multimillionaire who's throwing some money? So down you on think Tiger. that's who we're dealing with here? We're not dealing with some kid who scratches up eighty five grand. I, I don't know. I'm just saying. I'm I'm skeptical. Like everything we see now in the news, like then the guy who uh, fought off the mountain line wasn't in a cub. <laughs> Right? right afterwards, like we, I, 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 you know. it sounds like a lot of jealousy is what it sounds. It, like. it was a, it was oh, a kitten. Yeah. It was a kitten. I, I know you actually. didn't win this week. Right. So. I predicted him. I predicted Tiger Woods win. Wait, why didn't you bet him? Because we live have, in New York State. Well, Never mind. A, I didn't get on a plane to go to Vegas. Right. Um, B, I don't. My cojones aren't big enough to bet that amount of money. Sure. Uh, Nor that. do you have it. No, but here's why. <laughs> yeah, that's correct. But here's why it was a smart bet. Right. Um, it wasn't as crazy of as a bet as everybody thought. Right. Um, betting on Tiger Woods to win. He was the third favorite, 12 to 1. Not only that, but you look at the field to win the Masters. Yeah. It's the smallest field of the majors. Yeah. And out of that field, there's 20 guys who have no chance uh, at all um, teeing off on Thursday. The other majors it, change locations. That one never does, right? And then, you know, like, you know everybody knew, you figure Tiger's going to make the cut, yeah. right? Um, then you got the cut's traditionally 50 players. It was 65, but it's 50 players, right? So out of those 50, how many have a legit chance to win? 25? Mm-hmm. Half the field. Mm-hmm. So he's got to beat 25 other golfers, right? And and then actually going into Sunday, how many do you really have to beat? Yeah, but but come the on. bet was played. The but bet you, was placed way before. I understand. That. No, no, no. You can't you can't look at that leaderboard Sunday and say that was a cakewalk. Those oh, were never ten said ma- it was a cakewalk. Those were ten major winners right around him. It never said it was a cakewalk. But the reason why I felt he was going to win. By the way, the first one he ever came back from behind to win. His other fourteen majors, he was the leader. Right. Oh yeah, the greatest front runner 54, ever. Fifty four, right? Fifty four. Yes. But feeling, I like the fact they were off in threes. So yep. uh, the, uh, the the bunch together, yep. right? So the last three groups, nine players with a okay. chance to win, they could all feel Tiger's presence right behind them. Here's why, or I with them. them. Here's what I love the most, and uh, we'll finish on this. You've said that three he times, by the way. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying. I bet the over on the hour. Apparently, the show. He uh, he didn't win that because he was better than anybody. He didn't win that because you know he got lucky. He won it because he was smarter than everybody else. Well, th- that's why he won that. If smarter means better, he knew how to play better. 
Yeah, but not physically. I mean, I mean, physically. He wasn't physically better than anybody else out there. He shot 70. You know what I mean? He was smarter. He knew exactly where to go when it's, That's always when not been the way Tiger plays. Aside from being great, well, but aside from being great at what he does, it's it, in his heyday, he, he would always get that lead by Friday or Saturday and then play par golf the rest of the way because nobody could ever catch him. He would never make the mistakes no. that let anybody try to catch him no, a lot of times. Tiger, Tiger's great. Tiger would uh, race out to a lead, mm-hmm. right? I mean, when he first came in, he overpowered everybody, right? Right. But he'd get out to a lead, and then he just knew how to maintain that lead. Right. Tiger's Tiger knew knows how to turn on the switch when he can. You know, listen, yes. when you look at the back nine there, yes, he, right. I mean, he sees he Mol- the spots. Molinari makes a mistake. What does Tiger do? Yep. You, you don't go at that pin on a Sunday. Right. You go right. way to the left. Did anybody not watch Jordan Speed a few years You're ago? Talking fifteen. Yeah. You know, twelve. Everybody. No, I'm talking about oh, twelve. Twelve. Water, I'm talking about yeah. 12. I mean, did you not see Jordan Spieth? You don't even dare take that flag no. stick on. No. You don't go for birdie at twelve. You go for par. Right, you go for par, and then on thirteen, yeah. um, you know he didn't go for the flag. He played for the back left of the green. Yep. He played for a two putt birdie. Then he got on fifteen. Molinari, who was still in it at the time, he's in trouble. I'm going for the middle of the green. I don't need to flag hunt here. Mm-hmm. But then sixteen was his spot. Sixteen is his spot. And that's yes, what, Paul. That's what was different. You're right. Ten years ago. He's laying up everything. Everything, the whole back nine, he's laying it up because he's up by four. Sure. But he needed to go, and he was able to go, and pick, he picked his spot. 16 because was he, his right, spot. Because he, he doesn't have the ability to be up by four on a Sunday anymore. Right. And, you know, I, I thought on 17, he just lagged that birdie putt. Yeah. yeah it's just he wanted to make it, but I just, he didn't go for it. Go I, for I loved it. The, the mental part of it more than anything. I loved. Right. He's the I ultimate mean, grinder. I loved after he hit that shot at 16, he, was, he didn't look at a single human being for the next 25 minutes. Sure. It was it was tunnel vision. It was the you know, most unemotional walk up eighteen <laughs> for the most emotional walk up eighteen ever. Do you know why Tiger doesn't look at anybody after those shots? Because everybody's looking at him. That's right. Yeah. He doesn't need to. That's All right. right. <laughs> I think we've gone successfully gone over an hour here. Uh, which, Paul wins. Yeah. Congratulations, Paul. Thank you. You did have the line of the day though, the salary cup. I enjoy that. All right. You're welcome. Make sure you check out the premium section. Maybe there'll be salary cups available soon on SpotTrack.com. Uh, we want to thank. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no? All right. We'll sell some cheese with it. How's that? Uh, Mason Champion from Morgan Stanley. We appreciate uh, his time today. Sarah Slane. Uh, By the way, a little, a little draft heavy for next week's podcast? Yeah, or? speaking of drafting. Yes. Oh, yeah. Well, I want to remind this. We Two things. We want to thank Morgan Stanley again. They present uh, this podcast, uh, Morgan Stanley Global Sports and Entertainment. Uh, visit morganstanley.com slash GSE to learn more. Morgan Stanley, Smith Barney, LLC, member SIPC. And, yes, draft, 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 dynasty owner. This is cool. Yeah. I, we've talked about this for a few weeks. Uh, this is a great point to leave on here. Dynasty owner, it's a dynasty salary cap fantasy sports game. That not only plays the game week to week, but uses actual contracts and salaries that you see here on SpotTrack.com. Gives you roster power of being the coach and the general manager. Now, you don't just trade players for players. With Dynasty Owner, you can acquire draft picks or Dynasty Dollars, which is a virtual currency, to play the game. Now, you rack up Dynasty Dollars each week. Whether you win or lose your matchup, and you use them to build a Dynasty long-term, year in and year out. So, you know, we've all had fantasy teams where you know what, I'm not going to play this wide receiver this week. And he just goes out and has a fantastic uh, week. Well, guess what? That's not a problem in Dynasty Owner because your bench is going to earn a percentage of their performance for that week because we all know Dynasties are built with a deep 
bench. Dynasty owner even allows you to exceed the salary cap and go all in this year if you want to, but be prepared. There is a luxury tax fine, just like in the real sports world. It's the first game to combine week-to-week fantasy sports gaming with long-term ownership and general manager strategy. Stop playing fantasy sports, guys. Own it. Go to DynastyOwner.com. Sign up for the 2019 beta draft. All right, great stuff there. Make sure you check out Dynasty Owner. Thanks again to Morgan Stanley, Mike Gennetti, Paul Peck. I'm Kevin Sylvester. We'll talk to you next time here on the Spot Track Podcast.